I'm Sean Eckford, one of the directors here at the Sunshine Coast Festival of the Written Arts and producer of our daily podcast. Today is Sunday, August the 18th, and that means it is the final day of the Festival of the Written Arts for 2019. Over the course of the last couple of podcasts, uh, I introduced themes that were emerging in the author presentations on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Uh, Author-editor relationship was one, family was another, and strangely enough, those same themes carried through again today, Sunday, but... uh, I'm going to leave that aside for now because I want to catch up with a couple of other interesting tidbits that uh, happened, both of them on Saturday. The uh, two presentations that happened after we'd completed our podcast for the day. Of course, acclaimed mystery writer Peter Robinson was on stage. And Peter, if you don't know, splits his time between uh, his native Yorkshire and uh, Toronto. As you probably know, Peter sets his Alan Banks stories in Yorkshire, where he now has a home in a community that is actually in many ways the model for Eastvale, the fictional place where the stories are set. You know, I I always used to go back sort of once a year for for a couple of weeks because I was the only one who came over here. My, My family was still there always. And um, in the past, so for about 14, 15 years, I've been fortunate enough to have a house in, in Richmond, in North Yorkshire, in Swaledale. So we spend more time there, and you know, maybe two months at a time rather than two weeks. So it's, it's more a matter of, of, of sort of feeling as if I live there part-time and live in Toronto part-time. It's, it's difficult sometimes sort of switching one world for the other. Um, because it's very much, you know, this isn't a house that we sort of rent out to people when we're not there. It's it's like another home. I've got another library there, you know, there's different books and uh, different music and stuff. So, so you know, it's, it's it's very strange. But yeah, I've, I've been able to um, keep up with changes in Yorkshire. But as I, as I say, you know, the Dales. I mean, certainly it, it, it sort of catches up with with the new trends and the, it, as far as crime is concerned, still the, the main crime is rural crime, which involves, you know, sheep rustling and stealing quads and, and, and things like that and farm equipment, which I think, I, I think it was um, Abattoir Blues that, that, that I wanted to begin with, you know, like a stolen tractor, you know, I mean, why are we dealing with this? And I want to show a stolen tractor could, could lead to other things. So... Yeah, I, you know, I do, I do keep abreast of uh, the changing patterns of crime in Yorkshire, but as I say, they change very, very slowly. Yeah, you, you just referred to Richmond and Yorkshire, and I understand that really is the, the base for uh, Banks' territory. I wonder, are you still welcome there? I mean, how many murders have there now been in... <laughs> and how many... <laughs> yeah, it's, Eastvale is, is closely based on, on, on Richmond and Ripon, and another Yorkshire town. Um, I, I, I have even been known to, to make mistakes and refer to Richmond as, as East Vale on occasion, but uh, I don't know. I mean, people don't really know me there. I mean, it, it's funny because I'm involved in a local arts festival. I have some friends that are involved in the arts, and obviously they know who I am, but it's a small town, um, probably not much different in terms of population than Seashell, but... I, you know, I, I can walk around there. People don't come up to me, and you know, no, if they know who I am, they, they don't 
They don't care. <laughs> I never get mobbed. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I haven't been drummed out of town yet either for, for all the murders. I, I, you know, I, I, I would have liked the, the TV series to have been filmed there, but they came uh, and looked at it. They came during bad weather, which put them off for a start. But also they said it was too small. It does have a, you know, the Cobble Market Square, but they, they said it was, it was too small to film a TV series without taking over the whole place. And people would really have hated me then. I, mean, I always thought, you know, you've, you've really made it on TV when you've ruined a village. Like, like uh, remember Heartbeat, and that, that, um, that, that, that village in East Yorkshire that, that was, you know, lovely little place, completely ruined. Or wherever they film Midsummer Murders, you know, I'll, I'll bet you they hate it. <laughs> Although it does bring tourists, I, I know. Um, so, no, I mean, I, I'm, I'm generally uh, okay in Richmond and uh, I feel safe walking around the streets. <laughs> you may have heard me mention in previous years that the audience Q&A at the end of the presentations is, is often some of the most interesting stuff that happens here at the Sunshine Coast Festival of the Red Hearts. That was certainly the case last night with the Bruce Hutchinson Memorial Lecture delivered by Lee Maracle, which included... By the way, a, a, what I'll call a stern reminder from Lee that we need to pay attention to the people we honor. She talked very critically about Bruce Hutchinson's uh, relationship to former Prime Minister Mackenzie King, uh, a man Hutchinson wrote about in often very glowing terms, and she set that to the counterpoint of the way Mackenzie King as Prime Minister had treated this nation's Indigenous people. At the end of her presentation, there was only time for two questions, and I want you to hear the whole Q&A. Thank you so much for writing um, Memory Serves. I think it's a very important book. For, for talking it, actually. <laughs> for talking it, yes. <laughs> for putting your oratory into words. Uh, every time I think I understand something about Indigenous cultures, I read something from another indigenous writer and realize I have so much more to learn. Uh, to that end, uh, there's two concepts you talk about in that book, and I was hoping you could elaborate a bit on them both. Uh, one is original story, and the other is original path. Yeah, I can elaborate on that. We came here with a set of instructions, just like trees have a set of instructions. Trees were instructed to blow out oxygen and take in carbon dioxide. We were instructed to speak to one another and to travel toward our good mind, good heart, good body, and good spirit. That's the original path we were set on. And we have to always ask ourselves that series of questions that I just asked myself in this book and read out to you. And I'm sure that that's not how you see things. That is not how you build your memories. Because so many thoughtless things were done to us. I want you to learn these things. I want to give them to you. So that you can become careful thinkers. Thinkers full of care. Thinkers that care about others. Thinkers that are connected to the earth, to the water, to the sky, and to our lovely, lovely mountains and seas and the plant world and the animal world. 
I want you to love them like I do. We were to love the earth and she would provide. And we were to caretake the earth and she would continue to provide. And she has. But now, through carelessness and because we were banned from participating in the stewardship of our own land for so long, the earth is facing destruction at the hands of North America. Let us turn back this tide, this terrible tide of destruction. Let us begin to take care. It reminds me, you know, my mother used to say, pick that up. I didn't put it there. Did I ask you that? (laughs) Pick it up. I'm asking you. Pick up the same instructions we were given when we came here. Take care of the earth and all her children. We have to take care of you too. That's the law that tells us, yeah, you can build your house there. That's all we asked you to do was take care of that little piece of property that we gave you. We didn't give you permission to boss us, to kill us, to sicken us, to deprive us. We didn't give anybody permission to do that. And yet it happened. We got to turn that ship around. One of the calls to action is fair and equitable sharing of this land. That's what we want. Anybody else? One more question. We have time for one more. I, I used to be a go-go dancer. There, right there. I see that man. That's an old man. <laughs> I've never read any of your books. No, um, not very I'm many not people the only have. Person here. <laughs> only person. But um, there's a thing in the Canadian state today called called reconciliation. Reconciliation is yes. this kind of policy. After 500 years of crimes against you, why are we being? Why are you being asked to reconcile? What happened to retribution, vengeance, and anger? That's your way, not mine. (laughs) I think your Bible says something about that, doesn't it? (laughs) Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I don't want to go home and tell that story to him if he's up there. (laughs) Because I hear he's a bit wrathful. (laughs) Do we have time for one more or are we done? I think we're done. Thank you very much. Now, as one does, we started Sunday morning with Chinese food, specifically what is often known as Canadian Chinese or chop suey cuisine. And of course, that meant hearing from author Anne Hui, who's recently written Chop Suey Nation, sort of part family history, part travelogue, Part food writing, of course, as she and her husband went from Victoria to Fogo Island, Newfoundland, visiting what are known as chop suey restaurants, the sort of typical Canadian Chinese 
food that you find in many small towns across the country. I had a chance to catch up with Anne as she was signing copies of the books afterwards. The authors, how are you enjoying the festival so far? How's the experience been? It's been just, a, like I said on stage, it's been a dream. I mean, this place is just feels special. Uh, the festival site is beautiful. It's just been wonderful. Um, the, the lineup that you guys have, have put together this uh, this year, I mean, it, it, it honestly is many of the books that I've been reading that, that I have on my bookshelf uh, right now. So I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful to be here and I'm honored to be uh, in the same lineup as, as, as some of these amazing people. I usually save this question for last, but based on what you just said, I'll ask it now. Is there anyone in particular you're really excited to see? I've already seen some incredible writers. I went to see Rachel Gies, and she was fantastic. I saw Yasuko Tan yesterday. She was also wonderful. Unfortunately, I have to leave right after this, but I, I'm very sad to be missing Alicia Elliott. Uh, I read her book, and it's wonderful. Sad to be missing Lindsay Wong. I think she's amazing. So many great writers. I wanted to ask you a, a, a couple of questions that, that I was a little surprised didn't come up in the Q&A, but maybe not so much because, I mean, you are a reporter. That's what I do when I'm not here at the festival. And it sounds like, you know, going through the book, that you were faced with a lot of the uh, dreaded cold calls on this. Like, uh, what was it like to sort of roll into town and just walk into a restaurant and say, hi, I'm, I'm writing a story, do you want to talk? I was received with a lot of puzzled looks, for sure, um, and even probably more than I'm used to when I do, you know, door stops or, or cold calls or uh, these 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 restaurant owners and these families who I was meeting. They they are not people who are used to being interviewed. Uh, they're not people who would ever expect to be interviewed, uh, and they're certainly not people who would expect a reporter from a national newspaper, you know, to just drop in unannounced. Uh, there was a lot of confusion, I think, beyond that as to why I would be interested in their stories. Um, so there was definitely that to contend with. I think the fact that I spoke the language in a lot of cases, so you know, I, I would always start with English, but if, if, if that wasn't being met with a lot of success, I would usually switch immediately to Cantonese or, or to Mandarin. Um, I think that helped me a lot. Um, in some cases, you know, these people don't speak a lot of English, and so um, they appreciated that. And I think that in some other cases, they were just so grateful to see another Chinese person mm -hmm. and to hear somebody else speaking their language. Um, so that was definitely helpful. And I, I, I don't want to tread too much in spoiler territory, but you also um, talk at one point in the book about, again, that other dread that the people in our line of work have about how, how the story was received by the people you wrote about. Yeah, I thought about that a lot because these were people who I really came to care about, even if in some cases I had only spent an hour or two with them. Um, they're stories had been living in my mind by the time I I uh, first published the, the original Globe story and then definitely the book. Like the, Their stories had been in my head and rolling around for such a long time. I really care about these people. I felt a responsibility, even more of a responsibility as a journalist, to make sure that I was 
uh, treating them as respectfully and carefully as possible. Again, these, these are normal people, they're not politicians or people who have any kind of media training. Uh, uh, so I wanted to make sure they knew what this was, what to expect, um, and that I was taking care of them, even more so than, than, than normal. But, uh, they, I mean, they've all received copies of the book. Um, I've spoken with a number of them since the book has come out and, and been in constant contact with a few of them. Uh, I'm actually meeting Narina, the, the woman who runs the restaurant in Thunder Bay, next week for coffee. She's going to be in oh, Toronto. Cool. Um, so in some ways, you know, it, it, it's strange because for a lot of these people, I think that I dropped into their lives for about an hour. Um, and yet, we have... I think become part of each other's lives in this very permanent way um, and I'm just so honored that they let me in. Uh, the other question that I'm surprised didn't come up but do you think they'll ever attempt a cross-country driving trip again? You know you laugh when you say that but <laughs> we, I've had we, the experience. <laughs> we, we've done a lot of road trips ever since then. When I say in the book that this is kind of our thing it, it it's true we my husband loves long-distance driving he really does and I think that there's something about road trips that is just so special um, you get to see you know not only the the, the your destinations but you get to see all the transitions from one place to the next and I thought it was just such a great way to see this country because to me Canada part of what makes Canada so interesting is is those transitions is seeing you know everything in between the provinces, how one region of Canada uh, changes from one to the next. Um, maybe not another cross-country Canada trip anytime soon, but I can see us driving across the states. It's, it's our thing. This hasn't turned us off. Great. Thanks so much. Anna. Thank Pleasure you. To meet you. Thanks, also on tap Sunday here at the festival, Alicia Elliott, author of the essay collection, A Mind Spread Out on the Ground, in conversation with Daniel Heath Justice, a Cherokee citizen, academic, and author who lives here on the Sunshine Coast. Sophie Woodruff, who helps with the podcasts here at the festival from time to time, was able to talk to Alicia after her presentation. Um, first question, have you been to Seashell before? Is this your first time? How is the festival going? Um, yeah, it is my first time. I've, I've been to Vancouver before, but I've never been to Seashell, so... It's actually just, it's so beautiful. And, you know, um, ha being able to just wake up and, like, walk along the ocean is something I've never experienced before. So I was just like, I'm going to do that every morning I'm here. And I have, and it's lovely. But And also in the evenings, too. <laughs> but um, the festival has been so beautiful. The, you know, the facility, or I don't know, I guess what you would call it, where all of the, uh, the readings and uh, presentations are done is so beautiful. It just, like, took my breath away the first time that I saw it. And it's so, um, everyone has just been so great. The um, presenters have been amazing so yeah well that, that's great to hear rare rare to hear somebody um, say such nice things but <laughs> so um, you had a really really interesting talk covered a lot of ground um, um, but I just wanted to kind of um, raise one kind of topic that you brought up um, you mentioned um, that you know a lot of the talk was around your your, your latest collection of mine spread out on the ground and um, you said that the choices we make um, that shape us 
and then a lot of the decisions that are made without us having made them or on our behalf, whether we like it or not, is kind of a part of, or was a part of kind of your journey um, to understand yourself. And, and, and I thought that was pretty powerful, especially right now. Um, it seems like a kind of a relevant theme as society grapples thing, with things like, like migration um, and um, colonialism. And I was curious if that was something that was on the top of your mind when you were diving into this work or if it came out of the work itself? Um, well, I'm kind of a nerd because I like to read like a lot and not just books, but also um, a lot of articles, a lot of, um, you know, essays online. I read a lot of also um, weirdly like university studies and stuff like that when I can get past the, uh, you know, the paywall. I can, I read those. <laughs> but um, uh, so I guess that, you know, I feel like I'm maybe a bit of a naive writer a little bit in that I'm always like, writing can save the world or change the world. And, but, you know, you can say that and then you have to also think about, okay, well, how do we do that? Um, and it's actually a very slow process because you have to, you know, kind of change one mind at a time. For me, it kind of, um, I guess, when I was writing, I, I had people who, in particular, I wanted the book to really... Um, resonate with. Um, so, so I really wanted uh, my essays to resonate with particularly um, Indigenous women and Two-Spirit and queer people. And so I uh, tried to, you know, make sure that their experience of the essays was centered in it. Um, and so, you know, um, when I'm wanting that to especially resonate with them, I want to, them to have the ability to look at my work and, you know, have that validation that they're not imagining things that these, you know, experiences that they have or that they observe in the lives of their loved ones, um, that they're real um, and that they don't have to, you know, question whether this is racism or this is colonialism or, you know, is this transphobia? Because it is. And the, the weird thing about this particular political moment is that words have kind of been abstracted to the point where people don't really even know what they mean anymore you know um for example racism everyone is like i'm not racist but you know if you were to ask someone who claims they're not racist well like what is racism then what would what would be the one act that you would say def definitively that's racism because you know we do have unfortunately a lot of these you know white nationalist young male killers going around and shooting people up and you know where would you consider that racism or would you what would you consider that and how does that how does our society shape someone like that because our society shapes all of us and so you know in as much as we're all living kind of in the same society we're getting certain messages I guess certain people are getting more messages more than others and it's so I don't know I'm sorry I feel like <laughs> oh no 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 it's, it's, it's really <laughs> You're, you're, I think you're get, touching on something that's, um, well, when I hear you talk about that, um, you know, the choices that we make and, and the choices that we don't make that shape who we are, kind of um, how that helps to reveal kind of what, what, what is sometimes invisible. It's kind of neat because the popular success of this book is also going to be reaching people who aren't your, you know, that, yeah. the audience that you're searching which, which is, which is like totally cool for me. I think, um, you know, that's, I mean, that's part and parcel of, um, uh, you know, 
I know, for example, like Shakespeare, I'm sure wasn't thinking I'm writing this book for, or like this play for Alicia Elliott in the year 2019. So, um, but yet I can still read it and gain something from it. Um, and I feel like that is how um, we should really be approaching all literature that's written by people who may not be from our particular identity or, um, you know, uh, viewpoint or what have you. Um, it's fascinating, though, thinking about um, what shapes us and what, you know, um, that we control and what shapes us that we don't control. Because I do think, too, when um, ta thinking about some of these, like, you know, young men who are resorting to very violent and destructive means, I think that they feel very powerless um, in terms of the things that they can't control. And so it's like they think they have no control um, because there are things they can't control that they wish they could control or m things that they have been told that they should expect that maybe they shouldn't expect and, um, and how it leads to this kind of continual disappointment or feeling of um, being powerless and having to assert that power through violent means, you know? So I think it's important that we all kind of think about um, how the world that we're in shapes us, how we receive certain messages, where those messages came from, and whether they're things we actually believe or things that we have just been handed, that we have carried with us, kind of not really questioning whether we should part of that work, at least it seemed to me in the way that you were kind of describing it, um, comes from being honest. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Daniel Heath Justice, who interviewed you, he called your essays ruthlessly honest. <laughs> uh, he, he also said they're a little bit painful. Um, but what really struck me kind of hearing you and, and, um, and seeing you interact with the crowd is how funny you are. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So I was curious, how do those two things work for you in a literary sense? Like, are you kind of, how do you use humor in your in your work? Are, is that a conscious choice, um, or are you just really funny? <laughs> um, that's so that's so nice of you to say, for one. Um, but also, I just find that in general, I think a lot of um, indigenous writers and people in general just, um, I think, use humor as a coping mechanism, and so you know, we can have very, very difficult discussions and also crack jokes at the same time and that there's no um, difference in tone or like it, it isn't out of place. And so I feel like, you know, the ability to kind of weave in humor is really, I think, more natural to the way that we all kind of um, interact with one another. There's this idea that drama and comedy are um, split and they can't interact really unless, you know, under very specific circumstances. But, you know, we can go through life and have really difficult things happening even at the same time as we're joking or, you know what I mean? So to me, that feels very realistic and I wanted to kind of have that in my writing um and just in general in my life I like to laugh so <laughs> I was like I mean probably the person who's reading is going to want to laugh too especially as like if I'm dealing with a really dark stuff you need those moments of levity to breathe you know it's a kind of a way of for me to try to care for my reader too um to be aware of like okay I can't just like hit them with all of the dark stuff all of the dark stuff all of the dark stuff because then they're just going to feel terrible so <laughs> I need to have some kind of balance. Thank you again so much for taking the time. It was uh, lovely to get to speak with you. Um, what's next? And then I promise I'll let you go and have a break and not sign books anymore. <laughs>
Um, well, okay, I, I'm kind of like working on fiction right now. We'll see how it goes, but um, I don't, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to jinx it. But it's, um, it's something that's fun for me to write. So even though it's a, about a dark, depressing topic, it's also funny. So I guess it's, it's like my my brand. <laughs> brand to have i guess (laughs) thank you so much we also sent sophie off to take in this year's new voices presentation which featured nazanin hozar and Lindsay wong in conversation with andrea schroeder hozar's debut novel is called aria it's set in iran in the years leading up to the khomeini revolution and it's been compared to iran's dr zhivago Meanwhile, Lindsay Wong's memoir, The Woo Woo, How I Survived Ice Hockey, Drug Raids, Demons, and My Crazy Chinese Family, is, as you might imagine, the story of her own family and how it's coped or not coped in some cases with mental illness. Sophie sat down with them during the book signing, and she started by asking if they had any advice for new writers. 500 words, 1,000 words a day, and just keep doing it every day and think of it as that kind of a thing. And in the end, you'll have something. Um, And that's how I approached it, rather than having some kind of a dream or anything about it. And I think that was part of the reason that I was curious about that for you specifically is because it um, it did take so long and you didn't have, you know, the reassurance of books published in the past. What kind of compelled you, what propelled you through that uh, that time? It's a need. It's a necessity. It's a, life is harder not doing it than doing it, even though it's still such a painful process. But life is more painful not doing it. So you'd rather just get it done. <laughs> Sounds like a good motivator <laughs> um, for you, Lindsay. Um, yours is a very high, very personal um, book, um, and again, it, it, as a first book, um, what you know for those who are kind of you know starting to wonder about, hey, should I, should I, is my life worth writing about? Um, what advice do you have for them? Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, publishing in general is very very, very hard. I think you just cannot give up. It's easier said than done. I have friends that I graduated with. They might send it to five agents, right? Whereas I sent it to over 100 people. And I think that's what defines whether or not someone gets published. Of course, you have to finish your work. As um, Naz said, I mean, a lot of people don't bother finishing or even sitting down every day to write. But I think the most important thing is just sending it out and not and not taking no for an answer. Um, and then um, back to kind of that, that really honest um, work that you had to, well, you had to write about your life. You had to put yourself out there. Um, you had to be vulnerable. Um, was that a scary thing or, or was there something kind of bigger pushing you to do that? Well, honestly, I think no, I thought no one would, re- would read it. I thought six people would actually maybe read the book, maybe the publisher, my agent. And I mean, non, none of my friends have read the book. <laughs> they don't care. My, my, like I'm banker friends, you know, um, which is really hilarious in many ways. And so I think knowing that my family, if they read it, they wouldn't say anything. And knowing my friends would not read it, it kind of freed me up to say whatever I wanted. 
Right? I think if I had come from a close-knit culture or a friend group that was really, really, really literary, I would have been like, maybe I'll take this passage out, you know? But it just happened that way. Or maybe I'm just insane or having a nervous breakdown. I don't know. <laughs> I like this advice. No, make friends with people outside of your, uh, you know, your cultural milieu. I'm, most of my friends are not writers. They don't really care. I mean, they love me and they care, but they're not... It's not that world. Yeah. They're all business people too, or something else, and and so you're not very self-absorbed in that way. You're just doing your job like everybody else is doing their job. Um, this is your first time, I understand, at uh, the Festival of Written Arts. Do you plan to be back? How has it gone for you? If it, I'm assuming, uh, do you hope to be back? I guess because well, I mean, this is my my first festival at all. And I'm just, I'm grateful Jane invited me and I, I hope to come. If she invites me, I'll come. I just realized that was a really awkward question to ask. I don't think we make these plans. We just hope they invite us back. But I guess the general question, maybe put in a better way, how has the experience been? Um, it's been amazing. The people here are really, really nice. We have such a diverse lineup. I mean, I don't think I've seen so much diversity in a festival before. I've been going to festivals since October, and I'd say this is one of the best. It's very well organized. The writers are all really happy, and everyone's just so nice and supportive. Um, one highlight was that I got to play with Yasuko Tan's chicken. So that was like the highlight of my year, essentially. I got to see a live chicken that wasn't in a supermarket, and I got to chase it, and I got to like climb on my arm. So that's like the best part about it. And I think Patty, I forgot his name, he invited me to come back in February for a reading. Well, Lindsay Nezanin, thank you so much, and uh, good luck with the rest of uh, the year and your careers. Thank you so much. Thank you. I haven't talked about the weather this year at all, and we woke up this morning Sunday to a bit of a cloud, a threat of some showers throughout the day, but by lunchtime everything had broken up. It was a nice sunny, breezy, picture-perfect late August day. In fact, the uh, light breeze was wafting the smells from the food truck and the hamburger grill throughout the grounds, which I I think made for a a better-than-average lunchtime for some of the people here on site. Now, after having had a particularly satisfying lunch and listened to some more authors, everyone's getting ready for their dinner break, and we'll reconvene soon to hear the Catherine Penfold Trio. And as you know, the podcast comes out too late to uh, take you on stage and give you a flavor of it, but I did want to leave you with just a taste of Catherine Penfold and a reminder that, of course, over the course of these podcasts, we can't fit in every author who presents here at the festival. So just a reminder that if you want full bios, links to all sorts of information, everything you want to know about the authors who've been at this festival and festivals in the past, check out writersfestival.ca. We're also on Facebook. And by all means, uh, give us a follow on Twitter. We're at SCFWA. Thanks for listening to the podcasts, and we'll see you again next year.